With Hashem's assistance, we are learning about Bukhamad of Peches, page 88. We begin four lines from the top. We sit in the Mishnah that if somebody damages the slave, the non Jewish slave of another, so he has to pay. And Rabbi Yehuda argued and said that true, you have to pay for four out of the five different damages, but you don't have to pay for embarrassment. My time with Rabbi Yehuda, so the Gemara says, What's the reason of Rabbi Yehuda? Why does he hold you do not have to pay for embarrassment? Because the verse says, When men shall argue together, a man and his brother. So it says at the end of the verse that you have to pay for any embarrassment. So we're talking about somebody who has brotherhood. This comes to exclude a slave who doesn't have a concept of brotherhood. There's different explanations of this. One of the explanations is that a slave, so when he has children, so his children, since they were birthed by a slave, so we find that the verse refers to a slave as an as a, something that's comparable to a chamor, to a donkey. Just like a donkey, the child, the offspring of a donkey, so they can mate with each other, so to the slave, says Rashi, a slave's children also has the ability, a uh, brother can marry its sister. So, so since we find that in regards to a slave that doesn't have ach, doesn't have brotherhood, so therefore they're not included in the concept, according to Rabbi Yehuda, of embarrassment, of having to pay for that damage. Virabon and the sages, what do they say? He is considered his brother in regards to commandments, because we do find that a slave, a non-Jewish slave, also has to keep commandments just like a woman. Says, according to this, according to Rabbi Yehuda, if you have witnesses who are contradicted to their person, and they were saying some kind of testimony in regards to a slave, so they shouldn't be killed. Because we find the verse says as follows, we do to them as they attempted to do to their brother. Right? So, their brother would imply that it doesn't apply in regards to a slave, but we find that it does apply in regards to a slave. We have another verse that tells us that it also applies to a slave. Because it says, In regards to Edom, these witnesses who their person is being contradicted, so it says you have to destroy the evil from your midst. We call Makam, and it doesn't make a limitation on this, it says it a blanket statement. So it's coming to teach us that it includes a case that you would have otherwise thought would have been excluded, which is the case of an Evet, meaning, Achiv, from the word your brother, it should have excluded a slave. However, from the fact that we have another place where it makes a blanket statement implying that we're coming to include more cases, it's coming to include the case of a slave as well. Elamayatu, the Gemara challenges the Rabban according to the sages, who say that a slave is considered your brother, the verse says in regards to a king, it says, it says, you're supposed to place upon yourself a king, this is a verse in Deuteronomy, in Dvarim, chapter 17 verse 15. So it says you have to place upon yourselves a king from amidst your brothers. But we know that a slave is not allowed to be a king. So how do the sages explain this? It says your brother was a slave excluded. Amri, so we say like this, according to your very reasoning, everyone does a problem. Because in regards to a convert, the Gemara Nivama says, as Rashi brings down, that a ger, a convert, until his mother is Jewish, until the person's mother is Jewish, he can't become a king over the Jewish people. So why is that? This person is certainly, certainly a convert, is a full-fledged Jew, he's considered completely your brother, so why is he not allowed to be a king? Because it must be, because the reason is, because there's a verse that explicitly says, from the midst of your brothers, this is coming to teach you not just your brother it doesn't it's not enough of a qualification but rather has to be something more special it has to be on a higher level of lineage of your brothers so even though a convert of course is a full-fledged Jew in every sense of the word but for a king so we need that he also have a special level of lineage now the Gemara says, based on what we're saying, according to the sages, 
According to the sages who say that a slave is included in the concept of your brother, so a slave should also be permitted to say testimony. We know, we know that that's not true. And why should it be so? Because we have a verse. The verse says that if a witness is found to be false, he said false witness about his brother. So we see it talks about a, a witness being a brother, so a slave should also be included. They should be allowed to say testimony. So Ula responds as follows. We can't say that a slave has the ability to be witness. Why? Because in regards to testimony, we actually learn it out from a logical derivation from a woman. If we find in regards to a woman that she has the ability to marry into all the Jewish people, and a slave cannot, and she nevertheless does not have the ability to say testimony, in regards to a slave, he doesn't have permission to marry into the Jewish people. Certainly, he shouldn't have the ability to, to say testimony. How can you prove anything from a woman? She doesn't have the ability to have a circumcision. A slave has an advantage. So he does have the ability to have circumcision. We can actually prove it from a minor. A minor has the obligation and the ability to have circumcision. Nevertheless, a minor is not permitted to say testimony. So therefore, we can prove that in regards to a slave also, he doesn't have the ability to say testimony. Gemara says, how can you prove anything from a cotton, from a minor? My cotton, You can't prove it from a minor because he doesn't have an obligation in commandments. A slave does have commandments. So Gemara says, So that we can prove from a woman. A woman does have an obligation to do the same commandments as a slave. She does have an obligation to do the commandments. Nevertheless, she doesn't have the ability to say, uh, to bear testimony. So now, anytime you ask a question, why can you learn that from this one? So the other one will prove it. Each of the things that's different about each of the places that we want to learn from, whether we're talking about a woman or a minor, so they each cancel out. The similarity between a woman and a minor is both of them are not commanded in all of the commandments. And they both don't have the ability to say testimony. So we can prove that it will be the same thing in regards to a slave. He also doesn't have an obligation in all commandments. He also cannot bear testimony. says, How can you prove it from those two? Both of them, both a woman and a minor, they're not a man. Maybe a slave is different. He's a man, so maybe he can't say testimony. So Gemara says, We can learn it out from someone who's a man who steals. A person who's, uh, who steals, he doesn't have the, the ability to say testimony anymore. Sigmar says, hold on, how can you prove it from there? Malagazlan, in regards to a person who steals chicken mice of Gamerlo, his actions caused him to lose the ability to say testimony. So how can you prove anything in regards to a slave? He hasn't done anything that would cause him to not be able to say testimony. Sigmar says, So actually, you can learn it out from Gazlan, and anytime you have a question, you can prove it from either a woman or a minor, that both of them, the fact that they can't say testimony, that has nothing to do with the fact that they have done anything wrong, but rather has to do with their, their intrinsic qualities qualities do not qualify them to be able to say testimony. So therefore, you'll be able to learn out from a gazlin, from someone who steals, who's a man, together with either a woman or a minor, those two will be able to prove to you that a slave as well does not have the ability to say testimony. Mabre de Ravina Omar, Mabre de Ravina gives us a different explanation of how we know that a slave cannot be a witness. Omar Kori learns it up from the following verse. The verse is like this, yumsu albonim. The fathers will not die over the sons. What does this mean? A person cannot be killed based on the testimony of somebody whose children are not related to him. So a slave whose children are not related to him, this is a drusha, we're taking the verse slightly out of context in order to say this explanation. So a slave who doesn't have children who are considered that they're related to him, he cannot be a witness and cause somebody to die. 
Because if it means simply, like the verse says, that a father cannot be killed based on the testimony of his own son, the testimony of his own children, then the Torah should have written, that fathers won't die because of their sons. My bunim, why does it say fathers won't die for sons? It doesn't say for his son or for their sons, it says for sons, period. Shmaminas is coming to teach you from this strange way the Torah wrote it, that a slave who doesn't have lineage in regards to his sons, they're not considered related to him, so he's not allowed to bear testimony and create an obligation for someone to be killed. So Gemara says, hold on a second. If that's the case, what does it say? The second half of the verse, it says, sons should not be killed for their fathers. We should make a similar type of drasha. That a son who's not related to his father, he also can't say any kind of testimony. So if so, a convert, so he should also be forbidden from saying testimony. And we know that that's not true. A convert is allowed to say testimony. So we say, What's what's going on here? Ger, in regards to a convert, true, he doesn't have a relationship to his parents. It's not considered that he's no that he's related to them anymore. Lamata but his children are considered related to him. This will come to exclude a slave who doesn't have any relationship with his children. He doesn't have a relationship with his parents, and he doesn't have a relationship with his own children. Therefore, that's what the verse is coming to exclude. Because if you would think that indeed a convert is not allowed to say testimony, so let the Torah write that a father will not die for his sons. And this will teach us, as we said, that a father won't be killed for his own son's testimony. And then let the Torah write that sons will not be killed for fathers. The Shamas, you know, this would teach us tray, two things. First of all, it would teach us that sons will not be killed for their own father's testimony. The second thing it will teach us is that a person who doesn't have a relationship with his parents, he's not considered related to them, so that there won't be testimony for such a person, for instance, a convert. And a slave, it didn't even have to say anything to indicate in the verse explicitly that we're talking about a slave as well because that could be learned out from logical derivation miger from a convert uma ger that if we find that a convert is not allowed to say that he's only not related to his parents but his children he is related to and in this theoretical version so he's not going to be allowed to say testimony a slave who doesn't have the ability to be related to his parents nor to his children so certainly he would be unable to say testimony from the fact that the Torah says specifically in this way which is unusual that the fathers won't be killed for sons and not for their sons the implying that a person can't be killed based on testimony of somebody who doesn't have a relationship with his children it's coming to teach you that a slave who doesn't have a relationship neither with his father his parents nor his children who the Pasal Eidus only he is not able to say testimony but a convert came to Yeshle since he does have he's considered related to his children therefore he will be permitted to say testimony if you want to say let the Torah just write sons should not die for their fathers why does the Torah say sons will not die for fathers it doesn't say for their fathers possessive it just says fathers if anything the implication is that here too we should make this kind of drasha that sons who don't have a connection to their father for example a convert they would be excluded from saying testimony 
The Gemara says, no, I did the cost of layumsu avis albonim. Since we had to say the first part of the verse, which is excluding a slave, and it says that the fathers will not die for sons, without saying possessively their sons, that's excluding a slave. Cost of nami, al We want to keep it uniform. That's why we said, and sons will not be killed for fathers without being possessive of their fathers. But it's not because we want to make a drush, it's not because the Torah wants to implicate anything else. So converts are included, they are certainly allowed to say testimony. The Gemara continues, We said in the Mishnah that if you have a minor or a person who's deaf-mute or a person who's insane, so if there's any kind of altercation, interaction between these types of people and a regular person, so the, it's not going to work out good because as far as the person who caused the damage to any of these three people, so you're going to have to pay. But if they cause damage to you, there's not going to be an obligation for them to pay. You meet the Rav Shmuel Bar Abba Mehegronia, the mother of Rav Shmuel, the son of Abba, from Hegronia, have an sivile Rabbi Abba. She was married to this Rabbi Abba. So she wrote that after she dies, she wants her possessions, whatever property she owned before she got married, she wants that to go to her son, Rav Shmuel. Bura, her son. After she died, to 88b, also Rav Shmuel Bar Abba, Kameh Rabbi Yermia Bar Abba. So Rav Shmuel Bar Abba went in front of Rabbi Yermia Bar Abba. Seems he was a judge. Ukmi Benichsi. So Rabbi Yermia Bar Abba said that your mother gave the possessions to you, so you get them. Also Rabbi Abba, so Rabbi Abba, who was the husband, so he went, he figured that it should go to him. Amr al Milsak made the Rav Hoishia. So he said over the story in front of Rav Hoishia, also Rav Hoishia, and Rav Hoishia went, Amr al Kameh Rav Yehud, and he said in front of Rav Yehud, Amr lay. And the response was as follows. This is what Shmuel said. If a woman comes in with property to a marriage, so that property, if she tries to sell it during the lifetime of her husband, and she passes away, so since the husband had first dibs on those properties, because when the woman dies, so it goes to him, the husband is considered the Yorish, the one who inherits the properties, so therefore, those who bought it, they lose their right to it, and it goes to the husband, and therefore, basically what he was saying was, that in this particular case, Rabbi Abba would be justified in getting those properties that uh, the, his wife had written to her son. So they brought it back to the first judge and they said what Rabbi Yehuda had said over in the name of Shmuel. And Rabbi Yehuda responded and said as follows. I don't know about what Shmuel said, but I do know a Mishnah. The Mishnah says as follows. We learned in a Mishnah. If a person writes that his possession should go to his son after he dies, so the son can't sell it at this point because they're still in the possession of the father. He can't completely sell it because it's considered that it's in somewhat in the possession of the son. Let's say the father did sell it, even though he shouldn't have. So they're considered sold until he dies. So if the son sells it, so the person who bought it doesn't receive the rights to it until the father dies, because each one can only sell whatever rights that they have. But when the father dies, miha, in any event, it will indeed go to the one who bought it from the son, even though the son right now doesn't have the full rights to it. Even if the son dies before the father does, and even though it hasn't ever come to the hands of the son, nevertheless it will still go to the person who bought it, from the fact that the Mishnah doesn't make any kind of distinction in regards to that.
soon we're going to see exactly how this applies to our case with a wife and a husband. But let's continue along these lines to try to hold cups, to try to keep our minds focused on this other case with the father and his son. Like the following statement of Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, it doesn't matter if the son died while the father was still alive, where it never came to the hands of the son at all, or if the father died first, as long as the, while the son was still alive, where it actually came to the hands of the son, either way, the person who bought it from the son is going to acquire it. It was stated as follows, if the son had gotten something from the father, but he's only going to get it after the father dies. So now the son tries to sell it while the father is still alive, and he hasn't yet received it. And then the son dies while the father is still alive. So Rabbi Yechanan says, in fact, the person who bought it from the son does not end up getting it. But Rish Lakish says, In fact, the person who bought it will indeed get it. Rabbi Yechanan says that the person who bought it will not get it. When does the mission say, that when the son sells it, so the person who bought it doesn't get it until the father dies, and when the father dies, the person who bought it will get it. That's only talking about where the son didn't die during the father's lifetime. That's when it came to the hands of the son. Where the son died before the father did, never came to the hands of the son. When the father dies, so this, the, since the son never got it, so the person who bought it from the son also will never get it. So we can understand, we can deduce from the statement of Yechon that he holds that when someone has the rights to the fruits, the product of something, so then it's still considered that he has the rights to the actual goof, the actual property itself. So even though the father has given over in a certain sense the piece of property to his son, he still retains the rights to the property itself as long as he has the fruits and therefore when the son tries to sell it he can't sell it because he doesn't have in a, in a certain sense he doesn't have completely the rights to the property itself so when the son sells it he's not selling his own thing he's selling something that belongs to his father Rabbi Shimon Lakish says that the person who bought it from the son has indeed acquired it when the mission says that when the son sells it that the person who bought it doesn't get it until the father dies when the father does die, the person who bought it will have it. Doesn't matter if the son had not died in the, in the father's lifetime because, and it came to the son's hands. And it doesn't matter even if the son died while the father was still alive. Didn't come to the hands of the son. The person who bought it from him did acquire it. We can deduce because it's because Rishlakish holds. This that the father retained the rights of the fruits does not entitle him to the actual body of the property itself. And therefore, when the son sells it, so he's selling something that's completely his. The father has not retained any rights to the property. The son has completely gotten them. Therefore, even though he hasn't completely gotten the rights to the fruits, because the, the son died before the father did, so but he can sell to this to someone else the rights that he has, which is the body of the property itself. And then when the father dies, it will go completely into the possession of the person who bought it from the son. Now coming back to our case in regards to a man and his wife, the wife gave it over to her kid. So now let's try to focus on that case. And we now, whether it was Rabbi Yirmiyah Bar Abba who said that the, the possessions do indeed go to the son, or Rabbi Yehuda 
And whether we're talking about Rav Yehuda, who said that the possessions will indeed go to the father, they both hold like Rav Shimon ben Lakish, the Ka'amar Rav Yerman Bar Abba, and Rav Yerman Bar Abba says as follows, If you would think, not like Rav Lakish, if you would think like Rav Yechanan, that whoever owns the fruits, so he also has rights to the body of the property as well, so then when the father dies, and the son dies, and he died in the lifetime of his father, so then why does the person who bought it have a right to it? When the son sold it, he wasn't selling something that was his. From the fact that we see it goes to the person who bought it, as Rish Lakish said, that if a person has the rights to the fruits, it doesn't per se entitle him to rights in the property itself, and therefore, that's why the son has the ability to sell the property. So in the case of the woman and her husband, so where she gave it over to her son, so there's a piece of property, it's called Nixim Alug, it's something that she came into the marriage with, so the husband has rights to the fruits, he has rights to whatever it produces, but the piece of property itself, so the wife has the, the etzem, the property itself, so therefore she has the ability to give it over to her son. Why? Because the husband, even though he has the rights to the fruits, the fruits do not entitle him for it to be considered that the property itself is his in this regard. So that's why Rabbi Yirmiya Ba'aba said that it goes to the son, it goes to the child, because the mother has the right to give it over. When they sent it in front of Yehuda, he said like this, Shmuel says like this, This is not at all comparable to the case of the father and the son. My time, and what's the reason? Because Yosef says as follows, If it had said the opposite in the Mishnah, where the son writes his property to his father, then we couldn't deduce, like Rabbi Yirmiyah Ba'ava said, that if you have rights to the fruits, it's not considered that you have rights to the property itself. Rashi explains that if we're talking about a father who's giving it over to his son, so it could be that in that case, that the fact that the father has the rights to the fruits, and he doesn't have the rights to the actual piece of property itself, and the son has the ability to give it over, even if he dies... So it could be there it's different because in that case, the father, even though he retains the rights to the fruits, he completely gives over to the son the rights to the property itself. Why? Because in any event, the son normally is going to be Yerush, he's going to inherit this piece of property from his father. So you can't prove anything in that case because it could be specifically in that case. And everywhere else, if there's a Kenyan Haperis, the person has the rights to that, to whatever the, the piece of property is producing, so such a person would also have the rights or be considered that he has the property itself. And in our case, by the woman, it could be that the husband has the rights to the fruits, then it's also considered that it's the rights to the piece of property itself. Therefore, only if the mission had said the opposite case, where the son is giving it over to the father, and so the father normally does not inherit from the son, so therefore, in that case, if we had said that the father has the rights to go and sell it, even though the, the son retains the rights to the fruits, and therefore, theoretically, he could have the rights to the property, and if we would have said there that the, the father could sell it, even if the father dies before the son, so then it would have been a, a great proof to our case, then we would have shown that in any case, we are not going to be Yorish, there's no extra reason why it should go to this person, so then then we would prove that the fact that you have Kenyan Paris, that you have the rights to whatever produces, does not have, doesn't show that you have the rights to the to the piece of property itself, and that's why the father could sell it. But now that it talks about a case where the father is writing it to his son, it could be that the reason that the son has the right to sell it now is because there's two factors. One is that the father is giving it over, and second of all, since the son is fitting to be the inheritor, so the father completely gives over the property itself, and that's why he doesn't retain the rights to the property, even though he still has the rights to the fruits. So Abai says like this, Is it true that only a son inherits the father, Abba? Well, the father doesn't inherit the son? 
Meaning, even if you would have the opposite case, you also wouldn't be able to prove anything. So nothing more says that what we're saying right now is not true. Our assumption is that when a father gives it over to his son right now, since later on he's going to inherit it in any event, so what's the father adding on by giving it to him now? Must be he's giving him the gufakaka, the, the piece of land itself, that ordinarily he doesn't get. Why? Because as long as the father retains the rights to the fruits, perhaps he does retain the rights to the, to the piece of land as well. So now that he gives it over, he's giving it over for the piece of land which ordinarily wouldn't have been given over. So the Gemara says, that's a mistake. Really, because I could give you a completely different explanation of what's happening. When a person gives it to his father, even though the father is going to be Yerushim, he's going to inherit it from him later on, it's not the Pshat, he's giving it to him now, because he wants to give him something extra, which he wouldn't ordinarily get, which is the actual body of the property, even though he's retaining the rest of the fruits. No, that's not the Pshat. He's trying to keep it away from his own son. right? Because if the, if the person wouldn't give it to his father, so then who's going to get it? His sons. So the reason he's giving it to the father now is not to give it to his father per se completely, but rather to give it to his father and only his father so that his sons shouldn't get it. Hachanami. So here too, in the case where the father is giving it to his son, why is he giving it to his son? Not because he wants to add on something, despite the fact that he's going to get it later on, he wants to give him something extra now. No, he wants to give it to him later, but he wants it to only go to him and not to the other brothers. So now, when we explain this case, so from the fact that we see that the son can now sell it, despite the fact that the father retained the rights to the fruits, we can prove that when the father retains the rights to the fruits, he doesn't have the rights to the property, in all cases, including this case. So what do we mean? Why did Yehuda say that it's not comparable? The case of the woman and her husband is not comparable to the case of the father the son in the Mishnah. Because there was a decree that was made in Usha. In Uzha's Kinu, they, made an, they established the following law. That if a woman sells the properties that she came into the marriage with, as long as her husband is still alive, and she dies, that the husband has a right to take it away from those who bought it. And even though normally we say that if you have the right to the fruits, as this husband does, so it doesn't entitle you to the rights to the property, and theoretically she should be able to sell it to whoever she wants. However, the sages said, listen, we want to make sure that husbands and wives have good relationships, and if she has a right to do this, so so it's going to make for a bad relationship between the husband and the wife. So we say that if she does it, he has the right to get it away from the lakuchas, those who bought it, and this way it will limit the discord between man and his wife. And that's why Rabbi Yehuda, who was saying in the name of Shmuel, said that in this case, in fact, she didn't have the right to give it to her children, to her son, Rav Shmuel Bar Abba, but rather it would go to her husband, Rabbi Abba.